Thank you, Laurel, for reading, and thanks for the, those words from Hebrews also. Um, they're both encouraging and frightening, but <laughs> sobering, but thank you so much. Uh, before we pray and get started, I'm going to set this down here. Uh, I do have a, an announcement to make. Uh, for some time now, uh, I would say this even dates pre-COVID. Uh, we have, the elders have been praying and trying to discern what God has for, for Shepherd of the Valley and what direction to go. And, and, uh, and then when COVID hit, it kind of gave us sort of an opportunity to rewrite the script a bit. And uh, so we, were, we have been in prayer, and, uh, and we have been burdened for a long time for children. Uh, just I, We believe that God has placed us in a, in a place specifically and in a time for this, and that we um, have a role to fill in God's purposes and God's plan. And uh, we kept looking, you know, to the west of us and, uh, and uh, the low-income housing over there and the, and the children. Then we'd be looking at the, to, the, to the east of us and all the high-income housing over there and uh, the children over there and just go, what does God want us to do about this, that he has placed us here for a reason? And uh, we kind of started being praying toward children's ministries. And uh, things happened really, when things started happening, they happened really quickly. And pieces started to fall together. And we, we I think Gary even said, that, or maybe it was Scott, I can't remember, it said, God has laid this in our lap here. Uh, you know, what are we going to do about it? And uh, pieces started falling, bit, falling together. And, uh, and God was also not... Uh, not um, unknown to us, we did not know this, he was also working in the heart of someone else, uh, of Don Griffin, and uh, uh, who has had years as a experience as a, as a children's pastor. And he has been kind of drawn to Shepherd of the Valley and is really intrigued by Shepherd of the Valley. And, and um, we got in conversation with, uh, with him, primarily through his son and daughter-in-law, Aaron and Elizabeth, and it just seemed like everything was just falling to pieces, falling to, falling in, the pieces were falling in place, not falling to pieces. <laughs> I got to get my cliche right. The pieces were falling together. That's the, that's the, what I was looking for. And uh, so we, we're stepping out on faith and we are hiring Don as children's pastor for this church. And uh, we are excited about it. I, I get emails from him and he's, he's excited. He's thrilled about it. Uh, and I think this is just gonna, it's gonna work out well. I think God is in this, it's gonna have some challenges. We are stepping out by faith that we are going to be able to hire uh, Don as a children's pastor, but we feel like this is what God wants us to do, so this is what we're gonna do, and we're gonna step out on faith to do this. Uh, so Don will be starting the first, September, first Sunday of September. Uh, he will come and he will we'll introduce him and, and he will share his vision because he can, he can share his vision with a lot more enthusiasm than I can, and he knows the specifics of it. And uh, we're excited about uh, what God's going to do, uh, maybe not in the next month or two months, maybe a year or five years down the line, I don't know, but I just really feel like that, this is, that God is in this. And so we're looking forward to having Don join us uh, the first Sunday of September, and uh, you'll get a chance to meet him and talk with him and ask him questions and you can do whatever you, you need to do to, to kind of find out what's going on. So I wanted to announce that and, uh, and ask you to be praying with us uh, this whole thing and uh, that we are not missing what God is leading and that we will uh, be obedient 
to what he's called us to do. So let's pray together. Father, we are asking that you, um, you melt away anything that's, that stands in our, in our way of, of, um, of serving you, that you melt away those uh, shortcomings in our personalities that, that deplete our resources of love and joy. Uh, we ask that you do in us what we cannot seem to do for ourselves, and that is heal and transform us and, and overcome our fears and our, our obstacles and our sin and our rebellion. So, Father, as we worship, and just as we had just heard your word read, we know that we can do nothing else but surrender to your lordship and surrender to your leadership. We want the name of Jesus to fill in those empty spaces in our soul, to fill in those empty spaces in our, in our, our church and in our community. We want to follow you. We want you to ask you to fill those spaces with your grace. And we trust that under the shadow of the grace that we, we pray to discover more and more, deeper and deeper, the bigness, the bigness of your mercy and of your goodness and of your beauty. We recognize that there's no place we can go where you cannot meet us. And there's no personality or no who that we can become that you don't receive us. And so, Father, we ask you to show us those things and show us our fears that, so that we are not driven by them. We ask that you show us where our hearts close down and unable to show love. We ask that you teach us to open it up without the presence of fear and worry and anxiety. And so, Father, as this time comes, to, we approach September, we pray for all the things that are, that are starting back, that are halting and... and, and uh, seem to be going uh, forward and then backwards. We pray for the teachers that are returning this week as they, they plan for the school year. We, we, we pray for the kids who are returning to learn. We are praying for the medical personnel who never took time off, it seemed like, to leave work. We pray for those that are returning to jobs, those who are looking for jobs, leaders who are returning to lead. Father, we pray for all these things that, are, that um, seem to be up in the air, and we, we ask that you keep our feet on solid ground. And we will give you the glory. As we pray that we look into your word, Father, we ask that you open our hearts and that your spirit be the teacher this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are coming down to the end of our series this summer of... Uh, does Christianity make sense? And we, like I said before, we've looked at these values that, that I believe uh, point us to God, but point in two directions. They point us to God. They, they tell us there's something else beyond us, but also point to our brokenness and point to our failures. And we're coming now to the end of, uh, with the value of power. And uh, we will look at power this week and next week. And then the next week after that, we will kind of hopefully try to tie the, the thing together so we don't lose the forest for the trees. So, um, uh, today is power a dirty word, and I had asked Laurel to read these two passages because I think they, they correlate together. They correlate with the story of Jesus and his uh, explanation of authority, and then what Paul says about that. And is power a dirty word? This is probably one of the most repeated uh, quotes about power, well, in the English language anyway. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, that's a quote by, by Lord Acton in the 1800s, and uh, that's probably repeated 
more than any other quote about power. And history has proven it to be true over and over and over again. Uh, it never seems to, it always seems to, to be a, a, a kind of an axiom, a self-evident truth. Uh, this last week I listened to a podcast uh, on Ivan the Terrible. And uh, that's an interesting thing to be listening to. Uh, I love, if you like history and you want a fun way to learn about history, check out the podcast, You're Dead to Me. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really fascinating, it's fun, it, it's solemn when it needs to be, but it's also funny and they bring in humor. Uh, anyway, I was listening to it this week when I was walking over to the office and uh, it was on Ivan the Terrible and he was terrible. And uh, he was responsible for kind of, kind of bringing the Russian tribes together. He's the first uh, leader, emperor, to take the name Tsar, which is really just a Russian version, I just found this out, a Russian version of Caesar. And, uh, and he truly was terrible. The way he executed people was just horrendous. Uh, a lot of historians believe that he was a, uh, a psychopath. Um, but then a lot of historians say, well, yeah, that's probably true. He probably was a psychopath, but you know, he wasn't the exception. In that time, in the 16th century, in the 1500s, it was happening all over Eastern and Western Europe. It was happening with the Habsburgs and the Stuarts and the Tudors in England. Uh, it was the time when the transatlantic slave trade started to take off, which had no regard for human life. Uh, it's also the time of the Reformation, where you could get killed, boiled, burned, drowned, uh, just for believing something different. Uh, Catholics killed the Protestants, Protestants killed the Catholics, Catholics killed other Catholics, Protestants killed other Protestants. It just seemed to be, that seems, seemed to be the case. That power tends to corrupt, and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. Well, we all know that, um, that, that power does matter, and Lord Acton is right. He wrote that in a letter uh, uh, opposing the infallibility of the Pope. Uh, he was a lifelong, devout Roman Catholic, and he continued to be a Roman Catholic, but he opposed the idea that a pope could speak ex cathedra and be speaking for God. He opposed that, and he said power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The problem was he never explained how not to do that. He never explained to us how do we keep corruption from creeping into this power. And uh, so it just happens over and over and over again. Uh, the Western story can basically be a story about how the, of a story of how to do that, of how to keep corruption from creeping into power. We've had revolutions. Uh, we've, had, we've tried to extend democracy in other places. Uh, we've had compromises and coalitions. Some groups have tried to, to, to uh, experiment with socialism or communism, and some have tried to experiment with right-wing dictatorships and fascism and Nazism, and we're all trying to figure out how to, how to keep this corruption from seeping in and creeping into power. But we all know that power matters. The other cliche uh, that, that uh, comes up a lot is it's all about power. And who said that? The person without power. <laughs> we see one political party calling that another political party. It's all about power. But we also see it happening in businesses. We see it happening in schools. We see it happening in families. We see it happening... In, uh, in local governments and state government, and we see it happening in the church as well. It's all about power, and it's usually done with by people, it's quoted by people who don't have the power and resent not having the power. And so accusing somebody of a power grab, grab can be a power grab itself. And so it, it just goes around and around. I mean, the cliche is that, that uh, you know, this church split over the color of the carpet. 
Well, I can tell you it's almost never about the color of the carpet. It's almost always about power. And at the same time, we know that power matters. We know that it's important. We know that, it's in, that we have to have it. We know that somebody has to be in control. Laws have to be made. They need to be enforced. Uh, roads need to be built. Uh, we, need to, we need to have somebody in charge to make decisions about phone service and about connecting electricity. Uh, we need somebody in power. And we can have this fantasy that I'm going to go off and live in the woods and be dependent on myself. And people fantasize about that, but that's all it is. It is a fantasy. Even if you take a nuclear family and put them on a desert island, somebody has to make decisions. And even if in the future, and we travel into space, a starship needs a captain. And hopefully it's a captain like that, like Captain Picard. One with character and one with good qualities. My point is that power matters. We do need it. But what's the problem? Is it a dirty word? But without power, nothing, nothing can function. Jesus claimed to bring the kingdom in power. There was a longing for that, a longing for God to take over and take charge. And he says in Mark chapter 9, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. It is what they have longed for. And Jesus in the New Testament says that his arrival, the cross and the resurrection, was the establishment that God is taking over. God is taking charge of things. He is in charge. Now the objection is, well, if God's in charge, then why doesn't he do something? You know, we look back and we say, if, uh, if we're facing with some, some natural disaster like a hurricane, or uh, a nuclear assault, for example, or, or a global pandemic, and we go to the president and say, hey, some, you need to do something, and he says, well, let's just sit back. God's in charge now. He'll take care of it. We want something done. We want things to happen. We want things to, do, to take, take a part in this. And that's what power comes from. That is the objection. That's just something, that's just a, a new version of an old debate. Let's see if I can get the next slide. Oh, there we go, an old debate. Uh, it was true in Jesus' time to wait passfully or prayerfully for God to act. That's what the Essenes did. They retreated back in the desert and they say, we're just going to wait for God to send the Messiah and he's going to take care of things. Or the Sadducees, let's run things ourselves and just assume God's going to bless them. The Sadducees got in line, got in, got in bed with the Romans, and they said, let's just do it ourselves and let's just wait for God to bless what we do. And then there's the mixture of the human initiative and the divine action, which is what the Pharisees believed. Let's do both. Let's try to do both. And then you got the royal house in, in there, the Herod family that was just a, you know, just a total failure. They were just only concerned about keeping power themselves. They didn't care about God. They didn't want to be bothered with God. They just didn't care about that. But that's a new version of an old debate, and we still face that today. We know that there are extremes. There's an extreme between abdicating power and abusing power. And how do we get that done? Well, this morning, all I want to do this morning is talk about the origin of power, what God has done about it, and then next week we're going to talk about what that means for us individually and as a church. How do we put into practice what God says 
about power. What does he say about it, and what do we do with it? Well, power is given to us, actually, from the very first page of the Bible. The very first page of the Bible, we have God giving us power. He says in chapter 1, verse 26, Let us make mankind, humankind, in our image, according to our likeness. And we will give him dominion over the earth, over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle and the animals on the earth, and all the creepy things that creep on the earth. And then verse 27, God creates humankind, male and female, he created them. And in verse 28, he blesses them. And he says, you will have dominion. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. You will have dominion over the earth, over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the animals on the earth. That's dominion, that's power. And a lot of people think, well, that's fine, but that was canceled out at the fall because humans have messed it all up. Well, I don't believe that. And one reason why I don't believe that is because when you go to Psalm 8, Psalm 8 says, yes, humans have made a mess of it, but they still affirm the power. The Psalm still affirms the dominion. And the problem is when we hear dominion, we hear exploitation. And there's a huge difference. Psalm 8 affirms our power over creation under wise stewardship. That's what he's getting at. If you go to Psalm 72, we see it again. We see how God describes what good power looks like. Oh God, grant the king the ability to make just decisions. Grant the king's son the ability to make fair decisions. He will defend the oppressed among the people. He will deliver the children of the poor, and he will crush the oppressor. That's what a divine leader looks like. That's what good power looks like. It affirms power that's dependent on God's judgments and God's wisdom. And you can read the rest of the psalm, and you get to the end, and you have this promise that if, the, if we're under this kind of leadership, then the glory of God will fill the earth. The love of God would fill creation under this kind of leadership. This is what God wants, the wisdom. The Hebrews recognized the danger in all that, danger in power, and so they were kind of balanced out. They were balanced out with the kings and the priests who had power in Israel, but they were balanced out by this weird, strange, dangerous ministry of the prophets. The prophets were so, sort of like the, the um, division of power. They were the ones to hold the kings and the priests accountable. And of course, there were bad prophets too. So when you get to the time of Jesus, you have a time of confusion. Because this is what the people are hoping for. They want somebody like Psalm 72. They want a king like that, and they're waiting for a king. And they, and they look at the house, the royal house, and look at Herod and see how it's failed. They look at the priests and see the corruption. They look at even the temple itself and realize it is just a, a, a money-making enterprise, that it's all been corrupted. And there's no prophet on the horizon. There's no prophet there. 
And they're going, what do we do? We're trying to hold on to our faith. We're trying to cling to our faith. But where is the prophet? And sure enough, there's a man who fits the description shows up. And he denounces the house, the royal house. He, he denounces the corruption of the priest and the temple. And then he goes on to say, and there is a king coming where God will be revealed. And sure enough, his cousin, Jesus of Nazareth, shows up. And he does these powerful deeds, these powerful acts of mercy. And they're going, this is it. He fits the description of Psalm 72. He saves the oppressed, he delivers the children of the poor, and he crushes the oppressors. This king comes and confronts the king. He confronts the powers. This is him. This is it. And so he comes in the rival, and this is, this is what he, we've been looking for. Paul goes on to describe this in Colossians, which is the other passage I asked Laurel to read. He goes on and kind of lays out what's going on. And he talks about Jesus having this victory over powers. And the whole book is about powers and authority. And this is what's really interesting, because he's talking about having victory over powers, and he's writing this from prison. So how does he do this? What is he talking about here? Who are these powers? Well, if you're the Colossians listening to this being read, you know who those powers are. They have names like Aphrodite and Mammon and Mars. They have names like that. They know these powers that are controlling them. And, they, and G, Paul promises that they have, they have victory over these. And we look at that, and we can read that about the, the ancient... I don't, I don't really know much about Greek and Roman mythology, to tell you the truth. We were supposed to learn those things in school, and it's one of those things I must have zoned out on, because I really don't know that much about it. But we look at all these gods, and they believe they, they lived in a time of, threatened, of where they feel threatened and confusion and fear, because they thought there were gods and demons everywhere acting through humans to accomplish what they were doing. And it caused them to live in fear. And we can smile at that or kind of giggle at that about this, this silly superstition, but we need to look in the mirror because we have the same thing. We have the same power. We just call them by different names. We don't have those cool names that they had. We call them political powers, the political climate, tribalism, partisanism, economic forces, political forces. We know, even if you, they, they, these forces get identified sometimes with a particular person often, but you remove that person and the force is going to stay there. It's still there. We think we can, we can export all this stuff and why can't we keep people from shelling people? We think, you know, that we thought we could, for 20 years, we could build something stable in Afghanistan. Well, I would, be, I would bet serious money that within a year, the Taliban are going to be fighting each other to see who's in control of that. The force is still there. We really didn't solve anything in Bosnia. We haven't really solved anything in Rwanda, even Northern Ireland. Why haven't we? We've got satellites and big guns and rockets and bombs and drones and all kinds of things. Why can't we force people to stop killing each other? 
these forces. The planet is perfectly capable of producing enough food to feed everybody and distribute it to everybody on the planet. What's keeping us? These forces, the economic forces, the political forces, the tribalism, the allegiances, the different things, these forces behind us. This is what's keeping us. They're powers. Where do these powers come from? Well, it, Paul even says that these powers were created in, through, and by Jesus Christ. These powers were important. But what happened? We abdicated our responsibility and submitted to the powers. And the powers became too powerful. And it started from the very, very beginning. We handed it over. We handed the powers over to Aphrodite. We handed our romance and our sexuality over to Aphrodite. We handed our, our use of money over to mammon. And they took control. And when these powers take control, humans always get crushed. And that's what's happened. Everything that gets given complete control will eventually crush human beings, and nothing is beyond critique except God. Everything is susceptible to abusing power over us. Now, I'm a capitalist, but capitalism is not above critique. I, I know of a very famous preacher uh, named Frank Viola, and he says he gets more hate mail if he critiques capitalism more than any other subject. It's like that's the core of Americanism. But nothing is above critique, and we give it too much power, and it crushes us. It's all about the power. And Paul heads straight to the cross. When he describes this, he says there is victory, and he heads, heads straight to the cross, and he says, but Jesus has overcome that. The cross and resurrection has defeated the powers. And what happens to those powers? Do they get annihilated? No, Paul says they get reconciled. They are reconciled within us. He reconciles the powers above us, in us. He challenges those powers. And he did so through the cross. If you ask why did Jesus get crucified, we can th we can give you I can give you a theological reasons of why Jesus got crucified, but the but the but the um, dirty side of why Jesus got cru crucified was because he confronted the powers. He said. He said, you can't serve mammon and God at the same time. He said, you can't love and serve Aphrodite at the same time. He confronted Caesar. He confronted Mars. He said, if you're going to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. He said, Caesar is not Lord. This is the kingdom of God. And we say Jesus is Lord. And when you get into the powers, confronting the powers, the, what do the powers say? No one stands up to us and gets away with it. And so they kill him. And they nail the accusation above the cross, the king of the Jews. 
You don't call yourself the king of the Jews and expect to get away with it. You get killed. But Paul says that the powers didn't defeat Jesus. He says that Jesus was not defeated at the hands of power. He says power was defeated at the hands of Jesus. That power was defeated at the hands of the bloody hands of Jesus. He goes on in Colossians chapter 2, he says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And he reconciles these things. The defeat of Jesus was not by powers. It was the other way around. He defeated the powers. He was stripped naked, humiliated, and, named, and nailed to the cross. But ironically, that's how he went out. That the love of God is stronger than Caesar. That the love of God is stronger than the law. That the love of God is stronger than Mars, it's stronger than Mammon, it's stronger than Aphrodite, it's stronger than all those powers, all the forces, the love of God is stronger than all of those, and it's reconciled. Where is it reconciled? In here, in all of us. When you say, don't worship Aphrodite, it doesn't make you a sexless, a sexless human being. You can use money and not worship Mammon. These things are reconciled. We can celebrate and acknowledge and celebrate and, and enjoy diversity and differences without racism and sexism. That's how these powers are reconciled. The powers were always meant to serve God, and get this, the powers were always meant to serve us. But we have flipped it. The cross is the victory. So to sum up, power was created for good. It is for good. Uh, but power got too big for its britches, and we gave in to it. We allowed them to take over. Power, we capitulated to power. Sorry, we do, I do have a slide up for that. Number two, on the cross, Christ defeated those rebel powers and stripped them of their ultimate power, which is death. And number three, that's why we are called to live a life of thanks living. The book of Colossians is all about power. The passage that Laurel read from Mark is all about power power. We like to take that last verse, verse 45, and separate it. It says the, the Messiah, the Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for ransom for many. We like to take that verse away and say it's just about me and my salvation. But you put it in the paragraph, it's all about power. And this is how he overcame power. And in the book of Colossians, thanksgiving is the name of the game. This is how he wants us to live. And I, I am convinced after going through Colossians this week and kind of meditating on this and seeing how much this appears in, in the book, that Thanksgiving can possibly be the most powerful thing we can do. To live a life of Thanksgiving. 
I believe that is the job of the church, and, he's, and Paul's saying, get on with it. Get on with it. Just a, just a few verses. It, uh, we always thank God for the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for you. And this, I'm in chapter 1. And in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance. In chapter 2, rooted and built up and strengthened in faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. And then we go over to, verse, uh, to chapter 3. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed or in all the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, give thanks. Chapter 4, devote yourself to prayer, bringing watchful and be thankful. I am convinced that Paul's saying, hey, this is how you overcome it. This is how you reconcile the forces within you. You live a life of thankfulness. That's how you do it. That Jesus, the victory is won, so get on with it with implementing it. And I think that's what he's trying to say. To get on with it and implement the victory by living thankfully. Every time we kneel and pray, it ought to be a life of thanksgiving, of saying, especially the Lord's Prayer, of saying, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not Mammon, not Aphrodite, not Mars. Jesus is Lord every time we say that. His kingdom come, His will be done. Every time we say grace, we recognize that the earth is His and we are enjoying the earth and what it, what it offers us. Every time we pray over a meal, every time we celebrate the, the Lord's Supper, symbolically we were saying Jesus has victory over the powers and we live in an attitude of thankfulness and gratitude. I, I, I get the feeling sometimes that the Western church, uh, when they want to know about power, they don't look at the Bible to learn what God says about power. And I think that's true of the church in medieval Western Europe. It's, tr it's true in the modern church. It's true in the postmodern church. They will go everywhere else looking for power, looking at how do we deal with power except the Bible itself, and that's got to stop. We've got to look at the scriptures to see what God says about power. That's where we need to learn about power. That's where we need to see that power has an important place. It has an important place in creation within God's purposes. That, yes, it can be corrupted, and it often regularly is corrupted, and when it is corrupted, it fails to point to the big truth of the saving of the gospel message. And yes, it can be corrupted, but power is still important to God. And we can live with the power that he gives us in a way that, that probably it just shatters our, our stereotypes of what power is all about. And we live with this attitude of gratefulness that this could possibly be the most powerful thing we do, that we wanted God to take charge. And when Jesus came, he did exactly what Psalm 72 said. We want God to take charge, and he did. Paul even calls him the second Adam. And so he has been, been, been given dominion over the earth. And we, as his followers, follow his way. The genuine human being and I mean, not, not, I'm not just talking about his, his humanness. I'm talking about he was the true human being who ever existed. The true human being showed us what power looks like. What it's like when God is in charge. That's what we need to learn from. And I think to start, it's living out of gratitude. Therefore, the most powerful thing we can do is a life of thanks living. And let's get on with it.
This is what happens. Looking at Jesus, this is what happens when the powers are defeated and are reconciled. Let's pray. Father, we are, are um, often confused by power, and it is so, so tempting. It is so alluring. But Father, give us a perspective. Father, we see everything we have comes from your hand. And we praise you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen.